The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm very honored and pleased to have author Marin McKenna. Marin McKenna is the author of Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA. I first met Marin at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting. She headed up a fantastic panel on antibiotic resistance. She's also known as the scary germ girl. Uh, you've been following epidemics and diseases of, the, of strange nature for many years. Marin, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell me something. How did you get started looking at germs and diseases and epidemics? You know, it really was serendipitous. I've been a medical reporter for all of my career, and most of my career was in newspapers. And about halfway through my career, I started out as an investigative reporter, and most of what I investigated turned out to be public health problems. I was in on an investigation of cancer clusters around a nuclear weapons plant and another investigation of the earliest cases of what turned out to be Gulf War syndrome from the first Persian Gulf War. And on the basis of those, I was offered a job at the newspaper in Atlanta, Georgia, covering the Centers for Disease Control. Atlanta is the home of the CDC. It's the only federal agency established outside Washington. And so what that meant, as the only reporter in the country assigned to full-time coverage of the CDC, was that I would get on a plane in the middle of the night when their outbreak police, who are called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, were going to an outbreak somewhere in the world. I would beg and plead to be allowed to shadow them and embed with them. And it was actually on one of those embed trips in the spring of 2003 that I first really came in contact with MRSA, or some people say MRSA, which is the bug that's the subject of this book. This is your second book. Your first book is Beating Back the Devil on the Front Lines with the Disease Detectives of the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which was one of Amazon's top science books in 2004. So you've been on this trail for quite some time. How is it that MRSA got your attention? You know, uh, it's really kind of a tangled tale. So at first, as I said, I was embedded with the Epidemic Intelligence Service, what everyone calls the EIS, and I was on a particular investigation in Los Angeles of MRSA. And what was so interesting about that particular outbreak was it was very serious skin and soft tissue infections, infections of skin and muscle, that were occurring in gay men. And what they needed to figure out in that investigation was, was there something about the men's behavior that made them more vulnerable? Was this bug behaving in some manner like a sexually transmitted disease? Or did the men's sexual orientation really have nothing to do with the outbreak? Was it really behaving just like a skin bacterium that you might pick up in a health club, for instance, off a gym bench? Fortunately, it turned out to be the second. But that outbreak had so many different threads in it about people's behavior, about standards of cleanliness in public places, and also about just how this bug behaved. These people described 
starting out with tiny little bumps or pustules like a spider bite, they said, and it blew up very quickly into things that put them in the hospital for surgery and IV antibiotics. And I thought, wow, why have I never heard about this? And then a couple of years later, I'd left my job as a newspaper reporter, and I actually was doing a year observing what goes on in emergency rooms. I I worked eight overnight shifts a month for a year in emergency rooms around the country. And in those emergency rooms, in a number of different cities, MRSA was everywhere. It was everywhere I looked. It was in so many of the patients coming in, in so many of them, in fact, that the ER doctors kind of took it for granted that it was going to be there, that they were going to see these problems. And that was only three years after that first outbreak that I had been on. So in three years, it had gone from exceptional and extraordinary and deserving of the CDC's outbreak police's attention to something that ER doctors saw as just kind of part of the air that they breathed. And I thought, what caused this change? How did this bug get to be so common so fast? And that's what started me on the odyssey that led to my writing this book. Well, you know, those of us who work in public health, we're always told that antibiotic resistance comes from the fact that we're given prescriptions of antibiotics and either we don't take the full dose or we abuse it in some other way or we take it when we really don't need it. So we might take an antibiotic, for example, when we really have a viral infection. And so those are really the public health messages. Finish your course of antibiotics and don't take an antibiotic for a viral infection. But to me, it looks like we're missing a whole category of risk, and that is with our food system and how animals are kept in confinement, how they're routinely given antibiotics. I believe, is it 70% of all antibiotics that are produced are used in the livestock industry, which always comes as, you know, such a surprise, and that giving animals antibiotics not to prevent disease but actually to encourage growth is also contributing to this resistance. Is that your understanding as well? Right. That's exactly right. That's a very good statement of the issue. And so public health for a number of years suffered from a bias that's understandable and yet that we're just now really coming to appreciate how limited it was. And that that bias was that it focused only on humans. It looked at what humans did and how that changed human health. And it's kind of surprising that it had that focus. I mean, on the one hand, you know, public health is about humans and where we worry about illnesses in humans. But we know and we've always known that some of the most deadly diseases that affect humans cross from the animal world or from the insect world. And yet it's only been in the past couple of years that public health has started to understand itself to be one health, as the term goes, which is to say that we look at human health and animal health and ecology all as one broad kingdom within which there are trends. So when we said to people, you must take all the antibiotics if you get them and you must not use antibiotics, not take antibiotics for something that is not affected by them, what we were really saying is Do not use antibiotics inappropriately. Now, that was a correct thing to say because in human medicine, many antibiotics are used inappropriately. But what we missed all those years, as you so smartly say, is that for all the inappropriate use that was going on in human medicine, much larger amounts of inappropriate use were going on in animal medicine in agriculture. And so now we have some legislation on the table, the Preservation of Antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act. It was introduced by Representative Louise Slaughter, the only microbiologist, I might add, in Congress. And yet, 
as much as you might think that many, if not all, health organizations would be behind this act or this bill, we're finding that not everyone is standing up for it, and yet it seems like it would save so many lives. What's going on? This is such an interesting question. So just to get really briefly into what's going on in PAMTA, of course, the the name of that legislation, the Preservation of Antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act, P-A-M-T-A, it asks in the main for two things, even though it's a very long piece of legislation. The first thing is it asks for the government to exert more positive control over the use of antibiotics in animal medicine that are very like or identical to ones that are used in human medicine. There are certain classes of antibiotics where the animal version and the human version are essentially the same. They might have minor molecular differences. Maybe they just have different names. And so if resistance develops in an animal to that antibiotic, then the bacteria are already primed to recognize that same drug and resistant when a human takes it. The other thing that PAMTA does is it asks that veterinarians get more involved in the use and administration of antibiotics in agriculture. It really turns out to be quite surprising to people that, you know, I live out here in the Midwest, and I can go down to my local farm supply store and buy a bag of antibiotic-laced feed. In fact, I've met people here in the rural Midwest who have told me that they don't really bother if they're concerned about buying cheap antibiotics. They don't bother driving to Canada the way people used to do. What they do instead is they drive to their local farm supply store because it is possible to buy antibiotics that work in a human in a farm supply store. That's amazing. (laughs) That's really amazing. And I wonder... Now, the thing that I think is important to say is that, you know, that what we hear time and time again when we talk about antibiotic resistance in animals is that the case for this being a risk to humans, quote, is not proven, unquote, or, quote, more research needed, unquote. And I have to say that's simply not correct. There are hundreds of studies now, many real-world examples of finding resistance developing in an animal and then because of the animals, the use of antibiotics in those animals and then that same resistance negatively affecting humans. And It it turns out that MRSA, my bug, the bug that this book is about, is a great example of that because sort of the third epidemic of MRSA, the, the first was hospitals, the second was out in community, the third is in farm animals. Just over the past six years, MRSA has been moving from pigs that were given antibiotics to farm families and from farm families into healthcare workers and from there into the rest of the human population. It's a very clear, very solid chain. It, it really makes the case in the way that few other organisms have done. Now, some people might say, well, you know, science will come up with new antibiotics. So if the old antibiotics don't work, we're going to have new ones in its place. And what I remember from the panel that you put together at that fantastic meeting in Los Angeles was that individuals who are involved in pharmaceutical research say, we're really not interested in developing new antibiotics because they're not they're not as profitable as the kind of drugs that a person would have to take on the long term. And, I, of course, I sat there in, in shock thinking, my gosh, I didn't realize that we were so profit-hungry, that we put profit so far in front of public health. But it seems like that's not 
a good way to think about this problem, that we're not going to have new antibiotics, and we shouldn't assume that we will. And, you know, that really is the case. We really are running out of antibiotics. And if you think about it from the drug company's point of view, which if you're, if you're going to solve a complex problem, you have to understand the points of view of everyone involved in the problem. Here's how a drug company might think about it. It takes about 10 years to come up with a new antibiotic. And usually the, the accepted figure is it takes about a billion dollars with a B. So first, it takes a very long time. Bacteria produce a new generation about every 20 minutes. So you can see how they would always be ahead of us. Right. But then consider, imagine for a moment that you are that pharmaceutical company and you say, well, it is, it is in the best interest of humanity that even if the bacteria are always going to be ahead of us, I am going to attempt to make a new drug. Now, most pharmaceutical companies are private concerns. They have shareholders. I mean, they're publicly held companies. But they're not government-owned. They are in the marketplace. They have shareholders and analysts to, to answer to. So you say to your shareholders and the Wall Street analysts, well, I want to make a new drug. It's going to be important for humanity. It will take me 10 years. It will cost a billion dollars. And then they ask you, what market will there be for your new drug? And here's the answer. As soon as you put that new drug into use, bacteria will begin developing resistance against it because resistance is an inevitable biological process, though there are things we do to make it worse. Hmm. If they become, if say in any area, 20% of the bacteria become resistant to your drug, then doctors will cease to prescribe it or they'll think twice about prescribing it because what if their patient is among that unlucky 20%? And third, most people take antibiotics just for a couple of weeks. If they have a recurrent infection, they might take them again for a couple of weeks. If they're very, very sick, if their bacterial infection puts them in the ICU, they may take them intravenously by IV for a couple of months. So now you have a drug that costs 10 years and a billion dollars that will only be full, work fully for a couple of years and that people will only take for a couple of weeks at a time. If you were that pharmaceutical company, would you want to make that drug? Would you rather want to make insulin that people take several times a day for the rest of their lives or Viagra that men will take every weekend for the rest of their lives? If I were that pharmaceutical company's shareholders, I would not want them to make the antibiotic. Right, until one of your kids developed an antibiotic-resistant infection. Correct. Right. Or until, as some people say should happen, until your government comes in and says, we understand that the marketplace no longer works and therefore we are going to change the incentives for antibiotic-making companies to continue to make drugs. Now, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea is a whole long separate discussion. But the reality is that back in the 1950s, which was the golden age of antibiotic development, in fact, some of our last resort drugs against resistant bacteria date back still to the 1950s, there were dozens of companies making antibiotics back then. Now there are about five. One after another, they have withdrawn from antibiotic development because it's just not a useful thing for them to do any longer. 
If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Marin McKenna, who is the author of Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA. She's a national award-winning journalist, and she's had an exciting history investigating all kinds of epidemics in the newsroom. Her nickname is Scary Disease Girl. And I love, Marin, the way your bio says, you almost always have a pair of latex gloves and a face mask somewhere nearby in case an opportunity should arise that you can't resist. You have had a fascinating history in researching diseases. And, you know, I have to wonder... What is the draw to you? What is it that makes this area of investigation so exciting? You know, I think anyone who works as a newspaper reporter, which is what I was for a very sizable chunk of my career, does that in part because they embrace the, the reporter's values of speaking back to power and speaking for the voiceless. And there are few people who are more deprived of a voice than people who are victims of infectious diseases, particularly emerging diseases, diseases that are new, that we've never seen before. They are always sort of the, the, the last to, to be attended to just because the diseases are so new that people don't really know what is going on. So that's part of it. I think partly I, I embraced the journalistic values and brought them into the scary disease world. But in addition, <laughs> diseases are really fascinating. It is so astonishing to figure out what the life cycle is of something as complex as Lyme disease, for instance, to take one emerging disease you know, that, that involves three different life cycles of an insect and two different kinds of mammals and then it ends up in a human and it has to do with changes in the in habitat and changes in landscaping around houses and I mean it's just that just the seduction of the complexity is so interesting at the same time what diseases do is so awful they are mankind's oldest opponent you know, and, and what is so sad about the story of antibiotic resistance is that it's the end, the potential end, close to the end, of the antibiotic miracle, which is really a very short period of time in our history, only about 70 years, in which we completely held infectious diseases at bay. I mean, most people don't, aren't old enough to remember that people didn't used to die of cancer or heart disease, or diabetes, because those are lifestyle diseases, chronic diseases that, for the most part, you develop over a number of years. The reason why people didn't die of those is that no one lived long enough. What they died of was infection. My own great uncle died in 1938 of what back then they called blood poisoning. He was a New York City fireman, and a piece of equipment fell on him, and his Wounds got septic and he died. And I recently looked up his obituary, and it said that they tried to help him by giving him blood transfusions, thinking that that would would dilute the infection in his blood. They couldn't give him any antibiotics because penicillin, the first antibiotic that was broadly distributed, wasn't didn't really come out to the public until about 1944. And people died like that all the time. And so when I look at when I explore the landscape of increasingly resistant organisms, what I'm looking at and sort of, I'm sort of feeling the drumbeat of history catching up to us again about how we wasted this precious shared resource of antibiotics and how as a result we might bring back 
a, a world without antibiotics again. So do you think that if we changed the conditions that allowed the antibiotic resistance to occur in the first place, that we could go back to being a society that had fully functioning antibiotics? I do think, you know, there, you can never sort of unring a bell, right? Right. It is possible for some organisms that if you withdraw particular antibiotics, that, that they lose they, they lose that resistance if they no longer encounter the antibiotic because they don't really need it, right? They, um, evolution is very efficient. If organisms don't need a defense, then, then they get rid of the genetic material that allows them to mount that defense. It makes them leaner and meaner. Sure. We would have to make so many changes in our society. We would have to consider changing confined animal feeding operations, the enormous industrial farms on which so many antibiotics are used. We would also have to change the way that we dispense antibiotics in human medicine because right now we really do do it very freely. A very large percentage of antibiotics given in human medicine every year are given for things that antibiotics cannot affect, such as viral organisms. We would probably have to change the way that we allow physicians to use antibiotics. And there are places that have done all of this, and they are mostly in Europe, where the different European countries have done things like, for instance, in the Netherlands, they have incredibly close control over who comes into their hospitals. They check you at the door, and if you are carrying an antibiotic-resistant organism, they put you into isolation until you're clear. In Denmark, they have completely controlled antibiotic-resistant organisms in animals by being very, very strict about how antibiotics are used in agriculture. In Sweden, they keep antibiotics, they take really really high-end antibiotics, the drugs of last resort, and they essentially put them back on the shelf and say, doctors in hospitals, you will not prescribe these until we say you can. We don't want you to use them freely. So there are all those, all those kinds of social control around antibiotics and commercial control that people in Europe have agreed to and as a result have much lower rates of antibiotic resistance than we do, but it requires changes in in market structure, it requires changes in healthcare structure, and it requires changes in agriculture that, w- that will be very challenging for the United States to do. I don't think we have a choice. Well, we can live without antibiotics, or, or we can hope that the next generation of antibiotics are built in a way that bacteria find it harder to make resistance against. But, you know, resistance is an inevitable biological process. Resistance is what bacteria used to defend themselves against each other before there were humans. You know, when bacteria would be in the same piece of slime or the same area of forest floor, and they would make chemical compounds to clear out their competitors for living space, and then they would develop resistance against the compounds that their competitors were aiming at them. We took those compounds. And we made synthetic versions of them, and we called them antibiotics. So it was a little naive of us not to think that the process that bacteria had developed so well against each other that they weren't also going to apply it to us. But there are, even though resistance is inevitable, there are things we do to make it worse. And the sort of things we've been talking about, about using antibiotics so freely in human medicine and especially in agriculture, those are the things that make it worse. With all of the research that you've done over the years in this area, is there a tip or two that you would give the average consumer or listener in terms of what we can do 
individually as well as collectively to kind of slow down the resistance? Yeah, that's a really good question to ask, and I, I, I really applaud the way that you asked it because there are things that we can do individually and there are things that we have to ask our institutions to do for us. What we can do individually is, is protect ourselves, is sort of cast a bubble of protection over our families and our loved ones, and those are things as simple as washing your hands a ton because your hands are the bridge between yourself and the entire rest of the environment. We can really insist that healthcare be very clean. We can, can politely harass healthcare workers if we're involved in, with healthcare to wash their hands. We can commit to not harassing doctors to give us prescriptions when we don't need them. And if you believe, and I think you should, that the free use of antibiotics in agriculture is affecting this problem, then we can vote with our dollars and we can buy meat and poultry and eggs and, and fish and so forth that are not raised with the use, free use of antibiotics. Now, I, I want to say there that no one disagrees that if you have a sick animal, you give them antibiotics. No one wants animals to suffer or to be ill. The issue is do we give antibiotics in an inappropriate way to animals that are not sick? Exactly. Now, so those are the things you can do individually. They will sort of stop antibiotic resistance, you know, at, at the level of your skin or at the door of your house. What do we ask our institutions to do? We have to come to grips with the incredibly broad use of antibiotics in agriculture. That is something that will only respond to legislative and regulatory change, such as PAMTA, the piece of legislation we were talking about. We have to ask healthcare um, on the human medicine side to really, really be much better about infection control and about cleanliness. It's astonishing that, you know, 170 some years after medicine proved that washing hands kept in the hospital kept patients from dying, healthcare workers still only wash their hands 50% of the time that they should. There are, are a whole bunch of societal changes that, that we need that will eventually ameliorate the problem. But while we're working on those, there are things we can do to protect ourselves. Well, Marin, I want to thank you so much for your incredible investigative work. Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA is a book that really, I think, should be read by everyone in society because we are all in this collectively. Marin McKenna has been my guest. I want to thank you. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Food Sooth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. If you'd like to learn more, I invite you to go to superbugtheblog.com. You can search Marin McKenna as well. Marin, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure to be here.